Father, thank you for this wonderful gift of salvation brought to us through the Son whom you loved, whom you sent. And Jesus, we thank you for going the full distance, bearing our sin, submitting yourself to death, even death on a cross, that you could raise again victorious, that you could bring us new life. We praise you, God, and I pray now, God, that you would open our hearts. Help us to hear you. Help us to hear your word. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Christian faith is built on the truth of what God has done in history. And when I think of that, I think of two major things that God has done in history. Uh, The first one was the one that began history, the creation of our universe. And I'm not going to spend much time at all talking about that one today, but I would just like to tell you that I've looked a lot into this, and I think that the only answer that makes sense is that God created the universe. God created you. I've looked into all sorts of different kinds of answers, and there isn't any that comes anywhere close to satisfying uh, what we know to be true. God created this universe. God created you. And I like to add to that that he loves you. And we know in part his great love for us because of this second thing then that I would like to say. Uh, The fact on which Christianity stands is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It really happened. Jesus was a real man. He really walked on this earth. He really died on a cross. And he really rose again. His body is not here. It happened as scripture said he would. That he would be raised again on the third day. And then he ascended up into heaven where he, we await for him to come again. So we Christians believe these things as facts. And it's very fair to question these Uh, I think that as rational human beings we have that right to at least ask questions about these sorts of things. But I would also at least like to suggest to you that we have to consider that it's very possible that God did create the universe and that he sent his son that we might know him. And if Jesus is who he said he is and if he rose from the dead then I would just like to add this and this should really... uh, give you all the reason you need to listen to me today at least, or to any preacher who's preaching God's word, if Jesus is who he said he is, and if he did what he said he did, then we should listen to every single word he said. Am I I right on that? If he told us that he was going to die for our sins and rise again, and if he really did that, there is something special about him, and we should listen to every single word that he said. Now, if not, if that stuff didn't happen, or if Jesus lied about it, what I would suggest is that you run away from here, at least. Because we at Cornerstone Church, as well as many churches all around the world, all around Fergus Falls as well, believe that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. And as for me, um, you know, they say, don't put all your eggs in one basket. I've done that, actually. All my eggs, not just my Easter eggs, all my eggs are in the Jesus basket. Because I believe that he rose from the dead. And then my life only really makes sense as I submit to him, as I follow him. Because that's what I was created for. The same God who created the universe also sent his son for you and for me. That we might have new life. So those facts define who we are. And I believe, specifically in regard to the resurrection of Christ, 
God wanted the resurrection to stand as a fork in the road. God wanted the cross of Christ to be some, and, and the resurrection as well, lumping that all together. He wanted that to stand as a fork in the road so that when we come to it, we must go one way or the other. Now the Apostle Paul, this is interesting, when he was speaking about Christ in Athens, so this is Acts 17 in your Bibles, um, he was speaking to people who many of them were not brought up as Jews or Christians. Many of them were from pagan religions. They just loved to hear what people had to say. And Paul was coming with what they said were some new ideas. And they said they wanted to hear him out on this. And he talked about the, the death and the resurrection of Christ. And listen to what he said. If I can get this quicker thing to work here. He, God the Father, has given proof of this to all men by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. Now I find that fascinating. Look at that verse. Paul is speaking to people who did not see the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, yet as he's speaking to them, he says that God has given proof. The resurrection is proof, not just to those who saw it, but to all men, by raising him from the dead. Now we're kind of in that same boat, aren't we? We're people who did not get to see the death or resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, I was talking with one guy several years ago, and he said, I believe it if there was a videotape evidence of it, of it happening. And my response to him was, well, actually there was, but the guy forgot to put batteries in it when he was recording it. So, uh, unfortunately, we do not have a videotape evidence of Jesus dying and rising from the dead. Yet, according to Scripture, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof to all men. So the question is, do you believe? Do you believe? Today in my sermon, I want to walk through an Old Testament passage, Isaiah 53, which spoke of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, amazingly, this passage of Scripture was written some 700 years before the death and resurrection of Jesus happened. You see, God told his people ahead of time what would happen so that when it happened, we would believe it. Now, last Sunday, as well as at our Good Friday service on Friday, I preached through the first part of Isaiah 53, and what I'm going to do today is finish up the chapter by looking at verses 8 through 12. And so far, what we've seen in Isaiah 53 is that God promised to send his servant, the Messiah, who we now know to be Jesus Christ. This servant was to be the one who would bring salvation, but also, as we saw, this, this amazing language that he would be despised and rejected. Think about that. The very one whom God sent to bring salvation would be despised and rejected. Yet he was also going to be the one who would pay the price for our sins, that he would take our punishment upon him, and by his wounds we could be healed. And the metaphor that runs all throughout Isaiah 53 is the metaphor of an animal sacrifice. In the Old Testament, the sacrifice of an animal for the sins of the people was a daily occurrence. At the temple, every day, year after year after year, there would be these animal sacrifices to, to cleanse the people from their sins. But if they happened every day, what does that tell us? Well, the book of Hebrews tells us plainly that those could never fully take away the sins. That's why they had to keep on being repeated day after day, year after year, because those animals could not cleanse us fully from our sin. So the, the sacrifice that could fully cleanse us from our sins was yet to come. And that's what Isaiah 53 tells us about today. 
So like I said, today we're going to look at verses 8 through 12, and I, I want to start by reading verses 8 and 9. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. How do you feel about death? Um, there's a lot of emotions for us that come about with that. Any, any of you lost anyone recently? Any of you feel like you're facing your own death soon? What, there's, there's a whole host of emotions that come along with death. And one of those emotions is a question that we have about the fairness of it all. Is it really fair to die? Now, it's one thing if we think about a 105-year-old man dying peacefully in his sleep after just being able to say goodbye to all of his great-great-grandchildren. But what about an innocent kid who's killed by a drunk driver? How do you feel about death when it's like that? Or, you know, sometimes you see on the news there's a, a criminal and he dies because he did something stupid. And we might, we may, yeah, stupid's a bad word, isn't it? I know. Um, <laughs> But sometimes people do those things, and uh, <laughs> you're right, Miles. I shouldn't have said that word. <laughs> it was a, it was. Sometimes people die because they do bad things, and and if we see that, maybe we, there's a part of us that maybe thinks, oh well, maybe they just kind of got what they deserve. But what about an innocent bystander who dies at the same time? See, uh, there's lots of questions that we have about the fairness of death. And in our passage today, we read about the death of a person who committed no crime. And that person is Jesus Christ, God the Son. Think about that. From eternity past, living in glory, yet he came down to earth to be treated like a criminal and killed. And look at the words used to describe him and what happened to him. Oppression, judgment, cut off, stricken, assigned a grave, and death. Later on in our passage, we're going to see that he was crushed, that he suffered, and that he poured out his life unto death. Are those fitting words for God the Son? Through whom the universe came into existence? Are those fitting words for him? He was innocent, yet put to death like a criminal. And, and real quick, take a look at verse 9. One of the specific things about him, it says that he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Well, if you flip to the New Testament, you see that right after Jesus died, a rich man came up and offered his new tomb to him in which no one had been laid. You see, one of the things that's amazing as we read this passage, remember in Isaiah, written some 700 years before Jesus' death and resurrection, it is true of Jesus down to the smallest detail, including the fact that he was placed in a rich man's tomb. Pretty amazing. Okay, one key question we should ask about this story is, why was Jesus put to death? Why? That's, that's an important question, and we can think about it historically. So let's, let's go that route for a few moments here. Historically, why was Jesus put to death? Well, there's several ways. For one, he was viewed as a troublemaker. Um, if you know a little bit about the time in which Jesus lived... Uh, the Jews and the Romans lived together in Israel and there was a lot of tension there. And some people thought that Jesus was maybe going to make that tension a little bit worse, so they said maybe it's better if he's just dead, if we get him out of the way so that this revolt doesn't come up. But then other people at the exact same time were thinking, hey, maybe this is the guy who's going to bring about that revolt 
to get Rome out of here. So you see, there was a whole lot of tension, and, and some of the leaders of the day said, let's just tamp that down, kill that guy, and get rid of the tension. Uh, another reason that Jesus was killed was that he was viewed as a sinner, or even worse, a blasphemer. Um, some of the religious teachings that Jesus gave outraged the other religious leaders of the day, and, and they didn't like him, and they wanted him put to death. In fact, that was, that was their reasoning, was that he claimed to be the Son of God. And then let's look at Pontius Pilate. He was the one who ultimately sent Jesus to his crucifixion. But what did Pilate say? I, I just looked at this again. In the Gospel of John, three times before Pilate sent him to his death, he said, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Three times. Can you believe that? Uh, talk about a fair trial. Uh, how would you like it if it went that way, if the judge said three times that you were innocent, and then eventually said, okay, death row. That's what happened to Jesus. And why did it happen? Because Pilate, as he was saying, I find no basis for a charge against this man, heard what the crowds were saying, and what were they saying? Crucify him. Crucify him. So Pilate apparently thought that it was worth it to have a little bit of peace if he could just kill this troublemaker and get rid of him. So historically, if you're asking the question, why did Jesus die there, you have three answers. But none of those answers really get to the heart of it. Because what does our passage say? What does scripture say? Look at Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Isn't that interesting? Why did Jesus die? Because it was the Lord's will. And that word will there, this is, this is almost kind of shocking. The word will means delight. It was the Lord's will in such a way that it delighted him to cause Jesus to be crushed and to suffer. Now, at that point, some people turn away from Christianity and, and they ask, how could a loving father do that to his son? Now, I would just simply like to suggest that there's a bigger plan going on here. And it wasn't just the father's plan. So let's... Um, we're going to walk into a little bit of dangerous territory here. It, okay, so I, I'm warning you up front that what we're going to do. I want you to consider a conversation that may have happened in eternity past amongst God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Trinity. We believe that all three members of the Trinity have existed since eternity past. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, perfectly united in will. That's, that's perhaps the main reason that we can call them one God, is because they are so unified in everything that they do. They completely agree with each other about everything. So the, the one eternal God has eternally existed as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I want you now to picture a conversation that may have happened in eternity past. I want, and again, um, this is somewhat speculative, but uh, I heard a theologian do it like this the other day, and he said it's, it's good for us to consider uh, what may have happened in eternity past. So think about this conversation. The three members of the Trinity are talking about creation. And as part of this conversation, they start to talk about the crowning act of creation, which was us. On the sixth day, God created man and woman in his image and said it was very good. So imagine God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit talking about us and maybe even, in, even mentioning you by name. Talking about how much God will love you. But then the topic of conversation goes to sin. 
And God knew full well that we would be sinners, that we would each go our own way. And God is holy, so He knew that He could not let sin into heaven. So for us right there, that's a huge problem. God loves us, but we're sinners, so we can't spend eternity with Him. Really bad deal. But then, the amazing part of this conversation where God the Father turns to God the Son and says, Will you go? Will you go? It will mean that you will have to bear their sin. It will mean that you will have to take their penalty upon yourself. It will mean that you will have to die. Will you go? And in perfect obedience to his Father, and in perfect love for us, Jesus said, yes, I will go. So when it says in Isaiah 53.10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, Jesus was very much part of that conversation, and he agreed fully to it in eternity past. God knew exactly what we would need, and he came up with this plan, and Jesus Christ himself came up with this plan. So some people call this divine child abuse, what happened on the cross, but that's not it at all. This is the most amazing act of love that we have ever seen, shown to us by our loving Father and our loving Savior. So as it says in the next phrase, uh, though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. Now, if you really want to understand what a guilt offering is, you can read Leviticus 5, 14 through 6, 7. Um, But if you don't want to read that, I'll just give you some of the highlights real quick. Uh, We're talking about a guilt offering, and there are two things that a guilt offering did. Um, I get this uh, clicker thing to work again. The first thing that a guilt offering does is repayment. So I want you to think of it this way. Let's say that somebody has committed a crime. Let's say that they have stolen something. Uh, the, the person who had something stolen from them has something taken away. So the, the, the guilt offering could actually be a repayment of what was taken. And the way that it worked in Leviticus was that the person was not only supposed to give back what was stolen, but he was also supposed to add a fifth of, a, of the value to that as a fine as well. So the first thing that a guilt offering did was it gave repayment for what was wrong. But then the second thing that a guilt offering did was that it provided atonement. Now atonement is one of the most important theological words that you could come across. Uh, but there's actually a really simple way to understand it. So I want to give you guys just a little uh, theological cheat sheet here, um, a little tip. Atonement just simply means to be made at one with God. You see the first five words of atonement? At one. There was something that stood in between us and God. Our relationship with him was, was hindered. The atonement made it so that we could be made at one with God. Again, he is holy and we are not. But through the blood of a sacrifice, we can be brought back into a relationship with him. We can be forgiven. And in the Old Testament, like I said, these these guilt offerings were repeated endlessly. Day after day, year after year, the people kept on offering them. But when Jesus came, as it says in the book of Hebrews, he offered himself once for all. So Jesus was that one-time guilt offering that was able to make full repayment and full atonement for us. To take care of our sins and to bring us back into a relationship with God. So Jesus was the guilt offering. 
So that helps us understand then what it means in the New Testament. A couple of verses here. Remember when uh, John the Baptist first saw Jesus in John 1.29? He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When he says lamb there, what he's talking about is a sacrifice. And then similarly, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on our sin. He was our sin offering, so that we could be cleansed from our sin and could live in a relationship with God forever. Now what a great deal for us, right? We're the sinners. Jesus comes and takes our penalty upon himself and dies for us, and we get off scot-free. We get to go and live with God forever. It's great news for us. But what about for him? He gets death. But that's not the end of the story. You know that. We've already celebrated that today. There's resurrection. There is life. But it's funny how when we talk about death, we talk about it as an end. Just think of a couple of our sayings that we have. Oh, dead and buried. If you, if you call something dead and buried, what do you say? It's done. Or uh, if you're watching sports, I love this one. Uh, let's say that one team is ahead of another team by quite a bit, and the time is winding down. And let's say that one team that's ahead hits a three-pointer. And then the, the announcer says, that's the final nail in the coffin. What does he mean? It's over. It, it is finished and done with. But for Jesus, his death and burial wasn't the end. Not even close. In fact, here's what I would say. Uh, here's a little fun theological game that you guys can play in your, in your own homes today. I imagine every one of you is just going to sit down and play this game together. Uh, but it's actually a fascinating conversation. Try to come up with a description of the word death that does not include the word end in it. Because death is not an end. Whether a person goes to eternal life or to eternal death, death is not an end. When we die in this human body, we go somewhere else. So death is not an end. So I encourage you, play that little theological game. Come up with a description of death that doesn't include the word end. Because it's not. And look at this. Here's where we learn this. Isaiah 10, starting in the middle. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So this is one of the best places in the Old Testament to go to look for the resurrection. Now, in a bunch of the Old Testament, as they talk about death, they have this kind of shadowy, like, I don't exactly know what's going to happen, but there's kind of this grim sort of picture of death in the Old Testament. But every once in a while, we get this glimpse, even in the Old Testament, of, of resurrection and eternal life. And there's two places that I want to show it for you. And actually, one of them is one that Brian already read for you. He read it in Acts 2, and in Acts 2, he was, it was quoting Psalm 16. So Psalm 16, 10 and 11, this is, a, this is one of two places that I want to show you in the Old Testament that talk about resurrection. It says, You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. 
You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So in the New Testament, like Brian read, these verses are said to be about Jesus. And look what happens here. He goes to the grave, but he's not abandoned there. And even though he spends some time in the grave, it was not enough time for his body to start to see decay, because as it says, you, will fill me, uh, you have made known to me the path of life. And that he gets to have eternal pleasures at God's right hand. So there's one place in the Old Testament where we see resurrection, although interestingly, it's the resurrection of Jesus. And in our other passage, which I just read for you in Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, that, that's the second passage about resurrection in the Old Testament. That one also is about Jesus. So uh, hold on to this thought for a moment. But what we see in the Old Testament is that one person gets to be resurrected. Okay, I'm going to come back to that thought in just a little bit. Okay, so Isaiah 53 now. It's the second passage. Psalm 16 is the first, and then Isaiah 53, which we've read today, is our other passage. And clearly the language up until now in Isaiah 53 has been about death, right? All throughout Isaiah 53, it is death. It is a, an innocent, sinless person dying for us to pay our penalty. But amazingly, halfway through verse 10, it talks about the servant doing things that only a living person can do. Look at some of the words. He sees, he does the Lord's will, he is satisfied, he makes people righteous, and he receives riches. A dead person can't do any of that stuff. And remember, this is all told to us some 700 years before it happened. So if you're, if you're <laughs> reading through Isaiah 53 and you're trying to understand what it means, I think the only way to make sense of it is to say that God was going to send somebody really important to die for us, but then to raise him again. And uh, Garland sent me an email just yesterday about uh, how, how Jews look at these verses. Um, but they don't have a leg to stand on because it, it clearly says that an innocent person died for the sins of others. Israel was never innocent. Uh, it says in here, nor was any deceit in his mouth. That's just not true of any of us. In fact, I read a Jewish commentator who was saying that these verses weren't about Jesus, and he said that we know that no man is righteous. And I'm thinking to myself, that's exactly it. It's only Jesus who has ever been righteous. And that's why he could die as a penalty for us. So God sent his servant ahead of time uh, excuse me, God told us he would send his servant ahead of time so that when he came, we knew that he would bear our sins. And it says in verse 11, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Now, that can either mean um, because Jesus knows God, he will justify us, or it can mean because we know Jesus, Jesus will justify us. Uh, theologians disagree on which one of those it is, but either way you take it, what it means is that the only way for us to be made righteous is through Jesus Christ. Okay? Um, if you need to slap your waiver, neighbor to wake them up right now, now would be the time to do it because that's an important thing to know. The only way that we can be made righteous is through Jesus Christ. And we're not going to be righteous, excuse me, excuse me, we're not going to get to heaven unless we are righteousness. I love how Billy Graham said it. He said, I need righteousness to get into heaven and I don't have any. That's, that's who we are on our own. We don't have any righteousness. 
And neither do I have a good Billy Graham impersonation, but uh, that's not the point here. The point is that we have to be made righteous. And what does the Bible say about us? Romans 3.10. There is no one righteous. Not even one. It goes on to say in Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we're trying to make it to heaven on our own, we can't. We cannot do it. The only way that we can be made righteous is through what Jesus did. And look what it says in Romans 3. The right, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. I'm going to leave that slide up there for the rest of my sermon because I want you to think about that. Righteousness from God, which every single one of us needs if we want to have eternal life, it comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Faith and belief, they're really the same thing. And the idea is that we're trusting in God and in His righteousness and in what Jesus did for us, not trusting in ourselves. Because He poured out His life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. We were the transgressors. We were the sinners. He poured out his life for us. And when it said he was numbered with the transgressors there, that again is fulfilled in the New Testament. In Luke 22, when Jesus was arrested, this very verse is quoted here. He was innocent, yet treated like a criminal. And the reason he did it is because there was a price on our heads. A price that we could never have paid. We could not rescue ourselves. We could not say to God, I will make it up to you. Jesus paid our price, and in doing so, he atoned for us. He made us at one with God. But he didn't stay dead. And part of the gospel, and we often forget this, uh, sometimes we evangelicals are so good at remembering that, that Jesus died for us that sometimes we forget to talk about his victorious resurrection. Let's remember that there is power in his resurrection, and it's the power of new life for us. And because he died and rose again, he has an inheritance. He was given the greatest inheritance ever. And we actually get included in that inheritance. Have you ever received an inheritance? Anybody here? You don't have to raise your hand, but uh, how does it happen? Somebody dies, and because you are somehow affiliated with them, whether that's a, a relative or a close friend, you get money or land or possessions. You get the inheritance based all on what somebody else had acquired and then just simply given to you. And that's what we get. In Romans 8, we are called co-heirs with Christ. It's a pretty amazing deal. Uh, but that, again, only comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And the resurrection, like I was just saying, isn't just about Jesus' resurrection. Although it's, this is what I find fascinating. Maybe you won't find this fascinating. But two times in the Old Testament, we see the resurrection. But both times specifically, it is about Jesus' resurrection. So what does that have to do with us? Well, the only way that we can be resurrected to new life is if we're with Christ. He is the one who conquered death and defeated it. And because he did that, we can have new life with him. And it's pretty amazing how Ephesians 1 says it. 
you might want to look at this later on today, but it's Ephesians 1, starting around verse 19. We're told that the power at work in us who believe is according to the great power that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. So think about this for a moment. On a scale of 0 to 10, 0 is low, 10 is high, how much power would you say that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead? I think that's our 10. Like, I think if you're looking at like, the most amazing things that have ever happened in him, you know, creation would maybe be a 10, but uh, resurrection of Christ, that would also be a 10. You see what Ephesians 1 is saying, though? According to the power that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, is the power that is at work within us who believe. Do you ever walk around in your life feeling like you don't have power to do what you want to do? I, I feel like that all the time. Does anybody else with, do you ever feel like, well, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do, or I just don't feel like I'm qualified to do the things that I'm supposed to do? Think about this. Resurrection power at work in you who believe. To do the very things that God wants you to do. God has wonderful plans for all of us. And he wants to strengthen us to do those things. So he not only wants to give us new life, like bring us into a new relationship with him that lasts for all of eternity, he also wants to strengthen us to live that new life. It's pretty amazing stuff. But all of this is only for people who will acknowledge that the way we enter into this relationship is as sinners and transgressors. If you read through Isaiah 53, you see phrases like, our transgressions our iniquities. We have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and he bore the sin of many. So be honest with God. Are you a sinner? Do you need Jesus? I want to close my sermon today by addressing two groups of people. First, I want to talk to anyone in here who either you know you haven't received Jesus as your Savior and Lord or you just aren't sure if you've ever received Jesus as your Savior and Lord. I hope you know by now that you're a sinner. And I'm not talking down to anybody. I am talking to somebody who is right in that boat. I hope you also see that God loves you. That's the reason that he sent Jesus because he knows that we were sinners and that we needed to be rescued. And he proved his love to us, not just by sending Jesus Christ to die, but by raising him from the dead. So if you're a sinner, please come to Jesus right now so he can give you new life. And the way you come to him is by receiving him as Savior and Lord. And for Jesus to be Savior means that we recognize that we're sinners, that we can't save ourselves, that Jesus' death was for us. So we pray and we ask Jesus to forgive us and to be our Savior. And for Jesus to be Lord means not only that he is divine, that he is God the Son, but also that he is king, that he is master. That's what the word Lord means. He is master. And we are to give our lives to him. And it's kind of ironic then that the Easter story about the death of Jesus and then his resurrection means that we need to die to ourselves. That's how the New Testament talks about it. We are to die to ourselves to receive the life that Jesus gives. So we give our lives to him. He is Lord, and we commit to following him. So if you've never received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, I encourage you to do that today. Or if you're just unsure, and that's how I remember it in my story, I was just unsure when I first heard this message. I thought I knew God. I thought I loved God. 
I just wasn't sure if I'd ever ask Jesus to be my Savior and Lord. And if you're in that boat right now, I just encourage you to give your life to Jesus. And in just a couple minutes here, I'll lead you through a prayer that you can do that. But then the second group of people is for those of you who already know Jesus. And that could be someone who just received Jesus today, by the way. But for us who know Jesus, please know that God's power is at work within us. Again, Jesus didn't stay dead. God worked mightily to give him new life, and now he reigns in heaven. God wants to give us new life as well. And that new life is not just a new life where we're left to wander around in the darkness and and wonder what we're supposed to do or fail all the time. Yes, we're, we're bound to fail sometimes, but... God wants to strengthen us. So I I want you Christians to be encouraged today that the message of the resurrection means that there is a power at work in us who believe. And again, Ephesians 1, you might want to read that later on. That power is like the working of God's mighty strength which he exerted when he raised raised Jesus from the dead. That's, That's huge power at work in us right now. God has good plans for us and he wants to strengthen us for them. So that's the story of the resurrection of Christ. In Christ, we have been made righteous, we have been forgiven, we have been justified. And if that's true, we should seek to spend the rest of our lives seeking God and learning what he wants us to do. Because the same God who had this wonderful plan to raise his son from the dead has a wonderful plan for you for the rest of your life. And he wants to lead you triumphantly in victory with power through the rest of your life, all the way through eternity. So let's seek him, getting to know him more and more, submitting to his will, and serving him for his glory. All of this is the gift that God wants to give us through Jesus Christ. And he proved it to us by sending his son and raising him from the dead. Do you believe? I'll invite you now to pray with me. And as I mentioned, uh, the first part of my prayer is going to be for anyone in here who would like to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. And again, maybe you're not sure if you've ever done that, but I just encourage you, what was going through my heart, my mind, when I was thinking about this about 20 years ago, I was thinking, God, I don't know if I've ever done this before, but I want to seal the deal today. I know that Jesus is Savior and Lord and I want to give my heart to Him. So if that's you right now, I just want to encourage you, even in the quietness of your own heart, to repeat after me the first part of this prayer. And then I'll conclude with a prayer for everyone. (coughs) Dear Father, we thank you for your great love for us. And we thank you for sending Jesus to bear our sins. And Jesus, we thank you that you came for us, that you died for us and that you rose again. I now pray to receive Jesus as my Savior. I confess that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I also pray to receive Jesus as Lord, my Master. I give my life to you, God. Help me to love you and to walk with you the rest of my life. And God, for all of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we now thank you and praise you again for this wonderful gift of life that we have been given. For the fact 
of the resurrection from the dead, which means new life for us who believe, which means power for the life that you have for us right now. And God, I pray that you would strengthen us with that power. I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart, that we might know that power, that we might walk in that power, that we would walk confidently into the plans that you have for us, by faith, seeing you work mightily in our lives. So thank you for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now, God, we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.